morning, good evening, afternoon, whatever it is in your part of the world. Good to be with you again. My name is Jonathan. This, of course, is a podcast. And today, uh, this episode is going to be dedicated to hanging out with one of my very favorite people in the entire world. That's right, Shay Daniel Foster. Shay is a uh, is a young person who's been through quite a bit in his life already, and uh, in the midst of that, has had to change some of his theological views. But also, uh, maybe more importantly, he leads um, my all-time favorite nonprofit organization called LoveHaiti.org. So if you're looking for a place to get plugged in, if you know, like, to be a decent human being in the world, maybe that's not the right way to say it. To be a human being that lives a full life, maybe that's a better way of saying it. If you know that to live a full life, you need to get plugged in and help folks who are experiencing some really difficult things and you don't have a place to get plugged in, well, this is your opportunity. Lovehaiti.org, just spelled out just like it sounds, is a great place for you to um, get plugged in and a place for you to check out. I love what Shay is doing there, all the people we're getting to help. And I love uh, talking with him um, about Haiti and about why he's involved and why it's important and some of the underlying maybe psycho, social, religious, spiritual, theological dynamics that um, exist in this entire conversation. All right. So this season of the podcast, you may know, we're calling Frequently Asked Questions. I will say I didn't have any specific questions about Haiti, but I did have a lot of young people asking questions about how to navigate change and how to figure out what to do with their life and meaning making, uh, relationships, all kinds of things that are colored by the stuff that Shay and I talk about. So I think that'll be helpful. Plus, it's just a great excuse to talk about Haiti. So I wanted you to know about this, all right? Hope you're doing well. Hope you've had a chance to check out the book, Theology of Consent, Mimetic Theory in an Open and Relational Universe. Seems to be doing relatively well on the Amazon sites and the other sites. And so I appreciate you picking up a copy, leaving a review. Speaking of leaving a review, it would be totally fine and acceptable for you to do such a thing regarding this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Give it a star, a thumbs up, a like, bop it, zap it, hit it, whatever you do. Um, for whatever reason, these reviews are highly important in our culture. So that would be much appreciated. Uh, okay, well, without any... Now, I'm not going to say without further ado, because too many podcasters say that phrase. So I refuse to use it. I will now uh, extract that from my brain and never even think about using it again. So I will say something like, without talking anymore myself, let's get to the meat of this thing and let's interact with my buddy Shay. Thanks, everyone. Excellent. All right, everybody. It's good to have, uh, I mean, on my short list of favorite people in the world, this guy here makes it. It's a super short list. His name is Shay. His last name is Foster. And it's uh, good to have you with us. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks, bro. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, so clarify I, for everyone. I should have said I should have said <laughs> dad, I guess, but that's all right. It's cool. I wanted to have Shay on because um, I always enjoy talking to him, but also, you know, like a lot of questions I've gotten this season of the podcast and now these videos i'm doing on uh zoom that'll live on vimeo that'll go through my patreon page how's that for multiple platforms um a lot of these questions have to do have come from young people who are asking about like meaning making questions questions about relationships questions about gosh just what to do with their life and theology and the Bible and religion and God and all this kind of stuff. So, and I know Shay has worked through a lot of those things. So I may or may not ask you those questions directly, but loosely all these things are connected because I know, well, at least the, some of the young people that I know that know you respect you. So your opinion is valuable. That's, that's nice to hear. That's it is nice. nice to hear. I mean, some of them I know don't respect you, but some I know do. Yeah. Respect yeah, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You can't win them all. It's uh, interesting that 
I'm not, I'm not sure what what you'll bring up, but last night I spoke at a youth group, um, and it was the first time. I can't even remember how long, but the first time in such a long time, I really had to detail out um, some theological thoughts because you know since I left like the typical consistent church life. I naturally just don't think about all that stuff anymore. I know kind of my values and what I believe, but if you don't kind of work through the logic, you kind of forget why you believe what you believe. And so last night I was writing this stuff down. I was like, why do I, why do I think that again? And most of the stuff I could kind of remember, but some of it just like, oh, this is what I think. And I can't really remember how I came here, but I know that this is where I am now. And so it's interesting feeling that and then talking to a youth group, you know, full of Christian kids at a denomination church, um, which they were actually really great and receptive. So it wasn't a problem, but yeah, it was the first time in a while last night thinking through some of that stuff. I totally relate to that. Like, honestly, every week, sometimes every day I'm in the same position. I have to retrace my steps and remember why I got here. And every once in a while, I feel like an idiot because someone will ask me a question. Well, I often feel like an idiot, but every once in a while, specifically because of that same thing, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I crossed that bridge and all those other bridges like a few years ago. And now I have to remind mm-hmm. myself. And even when you write a book, you, so I like, sometimes I can't even remember why I wrote, what did I say in that particular chapter? So mm-hmm. totally, totally get that. I think that's normal. So um, let's start there. What was something that you had to retrace to get in your mind straight for when you spoke to the kids last night? What was yeah. a theological <clears throat> thing? Or Yeah. So, I mean, like we were talking about Haiti. Um, uh, that may have been obvious, but Haiti and then was trying to reconnect it to stuff the church is going through with their mission of like restoration and and so the youth pastor asked me to speak on what that looks like restoration in terms of like a global perspective, because they had recently been talking about their local um, perspective stuff. So the main thing that the point I wanted to get across that I had to kind of remember the logical flow of is the just the concept of creation and humanity generally being inherently good, as opposed to, you know, just created from evil and inherently evil. So I went back and, you know, a lot of this stuff is stuff I uh, regurgitate from, you know, Dr. Johan Tradu of uh, what he kind of writes is like living out of Genesis 1 instead of Genesis 3, which I had never heard of that beforehand, but it makes so much sense of like, okay, sure, yeah, we something was messed up at some point and obviously there's brokenness, whatever. But when it started and like, at the actual beginning, it was all really good. Um, and it's just really funny that it feels like we orient our lives around thinking it was all made and was inherently bad. Um, I don't know. And I don't think a lot of people say that directly, but it's it's sort of how they shape their theology. So under a couple of those things, you know, talked about a couple Hebrew words in the beginning of Genesis. Um, and what was the last piece? There was a... I didn't use these words directly, but more or less hinted at um, the pantheism versus panentheism conversation, um, which was really important for me, kind of when I distinguished between those two uh, words there. And yeah, so I, I think more than anything, just trying to encourage kids to know that they're not just terrible people that need to find some escape. Um, and then the other piece that was tied to that was just the whole second coming versus rapture uh, concept, which I was actually surprised. There was only like two kids who raised their hand and said they knew what the word rapture meant. So it's possible, you know, and maybe just specifically with this church, but maybe that kind of stuff has fallen out of the norm for some churches. Um, You know, at this point, the Left Behind series is kind of old. So, and I don't think they're making new movies or books. So I don't know. Depends on what Kirk Cameron's up to. I don't know if I know who that is. Oh, that's the dude from um, uh, who did the a bunch of the Left Behind movie series. And is he the uh, the author? Oh, no, the... no, he's a he's a movie guy, TV guy. He was on a show called 
family ties. That was probably a little before your time. No, not family oh, ties. Oh, no, I don't. No, was it family ties? I don't remember. I say family ties. I don't, I don't remember. Anyhow, uh, you know that the author, LaHaye Jenkins, one of those is a Nazarene. I did not know that. <laughs> Left behind. So, yeah, the Nazarene makes it a, worse. Mm-hmm. But I do think you're right, knowing where you were at last night. Um, that church um, probably has left behind the left behind stuff a long time ago. Yeah. I, I, in, you know, we won't, I won't, I guess, get into the specifics, but like, I am so pleasantly shocked at some of the stuff I hear that they talk about at this church. And specifically, you know, my friend who's this youth pastor, some of the stuff he talks about with his kids, the, like the open conversations they have. Um, and they're in a denomination, you know, that, that we're familiar with that, that like we know does not cater to and, you know, support those kind of conversations. And so it's just really confusing thinking back on like, okay, so when like, you know, we had our church before our church closed down and was, um, you know, quote unquote, uninvited from our denomination. And, and this is the same denomination of, of church that I'm speaking of. Also, you can take all this out. I don't know if this is okay for you, for, you're good. for us to, uh, you're to mention fine. this, but it's just like, so what is it about these instances? <clears throat> Cause this isn't the first time this has happened. Other, other things happen in other churches that it feels like, okay, that's basically what we were doing and saying, but we got booted so quick <laughs> and, 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 you know, there is something to be said. I know about regional stuff but like this church is in our region like right next to us so um yeah so i don't know where you went wrong man i don't know what you did but um <laughs> well first of uh, all it's not surprising that this particular youth pastor is having those kind of conversations given that this guy grew up in our youth group and he was influenced oh by, yeah 100 percent. he was influenced by you and others and uh, maybe slightly by me and has got a good head on his shoulder so that makes a lot of sense. And I know the mm-hmm. pastor, the pastor is yeah. much more progressive and open to things, but you're, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you cannot wrap your mind around it. Why certain people and certain churches get excommunicated so quickly. Uh, certainly some of it has to do mm-hmm. with how I was uh, trying to be proactive and forthright with what I was thinking to make sure they knew about it. Um, something which is really be, ironic, but I know. Yeah. Another piece, which I don't know how to say this without trying to make myself look cool, but God knows I need myself to look cool anyhow. So another piece of this that's been pointed out to me is that the uh, quickness with which they reacted probably is commensurate with the amount of um, how challenged they felt by me particularly. So it's possible they really felt like I had some influence Mm -hmm. and they needed to, they needed to you know, move swiftly in order to remove that influence. And that eventually it could have come to a place like, and, you know, like I, I was, you know, there and a part of it to know that the point of the whole thing it was not to challenge people, you know, it was to kind of dialogue about the stuff, but I can see from their side of things, how they would think with how that was going, that it was going to come to a place where it was going to be like, okay, it's either his job or ours, <laughs> because this conversation doesn't seem like it's going to stop. So I don't know that that might not, that might not be right, but. Well, no, that conversation regarding LGBTQ is definitely not going to stop. And for that matter, no theological conversation is ever going to stop because about the time Mm -hmm. you land somewhere, things shifts, uh, shift, cultural norms change. And so you got to renormalize everything. So it doesn't make any sense at all, but Hey, here we are. And as hard as it's been, I'm actually, I have, have some gratitude about it. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, I think you do too. And I'm, and actually, I guess since we're on the subject, I will say one of the things probably I'm most grateful for is the way you and Evan uh, had to grow up in that and were formed by that, but that we all, I feel like at least, I'm sure your perspective is different in some ways, but I feel like for me, we all kind of, we did it together, even though I was obviously leading the charge on some of the stuff. I really was open to what you guys were thinking and saying and feeling and felt like we had, generally speaking, alignment with all of that. So I'm really grateful 
to have had that experience mm-hmm. and then to be where we're at now. Yeah. I'm, I think I've told you this before, but, um, you know, going, going into college, um, uh, so like, you know, right before college coming out of high school, I, I'm more or less probably still had the, all the standard typical evangelical beliefs, even though I, I didn't have like backing or like emotional attachment to those beliefs. Um, and then starting freshman year and, you know, as it was for you, a lot of this just came about because I was thinking of, you know, my sister's death. Um, I started just to realize like it wasn't working for me. And I think it was the first semester or second semester of my freshman year of college. Um, I went through a, some sort of theology class and uh, I came away. This was not what was explicitly taught, but I came away from that class finally just saying to myself, like, you know what? I don't think that if this whole thing works, this whole thing doesn't work for me if hell is a real place, you know, that we've, that works the way we've always talked about it. And that, that was like the first thing I thought of that was like, okay, crap. So this is different. And I don't know what this will be like if I, if it ever comes up with close friends or family. And then it was probably like that Christmas break, somehow it came up with you and I, and I said something, you know, very, or I guess from my point of view, I was being very cautious. And I was like, yeah, I I don't really know if I think that hell is the thing that we've always thought it was. And you immediately were just like, oh yeah, for sure. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. So we can probably actually talk about this stuff. Um, And then that was, I mean, honestly, that kind of feels like the end of that story because since then I've, I've always felt like we've been able to talk about that stuff and in such a freaking weird way, been on that journey together. Um, you know, so, yeah. Yeah. And so much of it was fueled and continues to be fueled in many ways by just the pain of losing Quincy. I know for me often, and you've heard me say this, um, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was like, all bets are off. Like, it doesn't really matter uh, what other people think because the pain we already felt was so much greater than anything you were going to do. Even the day I walked out of the denominational, that last meeting, and I was like, holy cow, I can't believe my entire life just shifted so abruptly, but I had peace about it. And in part, I know it was because, I'd like to say all of it's because I knew I was right, but... Frankly, I, you know, I have my moments where I'm not sure I'm always right, but um, I don't know that we're right. (laughs) The deeper piece is piece of it is that, you know, there was so much pain previous to that that nothing else even registered. Yeah. So I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is what you were getting at, but I definitely came to the place where it's like, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I might be wrong. But it really doesn't even matter to me if I end up being wrong. Um, and you know, there's a there's a word for this that I can't remember. It's some some um, philosophers like little logic triangle thing, or no, it's like it's a square, and it's the whole thing of like if you believe in God and God doesn't exist, okay, so nothing really happens to you after death. And the but if you don't believe in God and God does exist. So like that, that logic basically leads people to be like, okay, just say you believe in God, even like just in case this thing happens. And then, but, but then you come to a place of like, okay, so even if that was real, if that is the God, honestly, I don't really care. And I don't want to be a part of that thing. And of course that sounds so uh, arrogant to say, cause like, sure it's God, but it, it doesn't work for me. And if that is the God of the universe, I would uh, be open to, uh, taking up arms and rebelling a little bit against that God of the universe. So I would be open. Matter. I would be open to rebellion. Yeah. 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 Well, anyhow, I'm proud of the way that you've transitioned and continue to transition and change. Um, Thanks, tell man. me about why you wanted to get into nonprofit work. Yeah, I definitely don't have a a good answer. All right, give me once. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, I'm going to put Toro outside and he's breaking everything. Okay. Got to get rid of the cat. This is why I don't have cats. Because I don't really like him. 
except for Toro and Freddy. I like those two cats and that's it. Were you talking to me right there? Maybe. I'm not okay, going to tell you what okay. I said, though. Okay. All okay. right. So I almost you... shattered a bunch of glass. <laughs> why Why'd you feel compelled to get into uh, nonprofit work? I think it probably makes sense to just kind of trace the trajectory I was on because I think that just, I mean, obviously that's where everyone, how everyone ends up where they're at. But so I went into college. Um, like initially going into college, the only thing I thought I wanted to do maybe was like be a youth pastor. Um, and then I don't know, I can't remember why, but pretty quickly I decided I didn't want to do that. And that summer before college, uh, we went to Haiti for the first time. Hey, by and by the way, we should say that in second grade, you were 50% going to be a pastor oh, yeah. and, and 50% going to be a policeman. 50% pastor, 50% policeman. Yeah. So anyhow, but by, yeah. by college, you thought maybe youth pastor. All right, pick it up. Which, which funny enough, that's what um, my my father in law. That's what he uh, ended up being when I <laughs> when I married Caroline. Interesting. Uh, her dad is like more or less fifty percent pastor, fifty percent policeman. So, um, but yeah, so so we did that trip to Haiti, and um, I yeah, I really I had little to no idea um, what I wanted to do, um, and. And so that that trip to Haiti was very formative for all of us. And for me, like almost on an academic level, I started to think about like, oh, culture is really interesting to learn about and to study. And so still within the ministry department um, at the university I went to, um, there was a major called intercultural studies, which to me, just that word by itself, those words sounded really cool. Um, So that's what I ended up signing up for. <clears throat> That's what I graduated with. And for the most part, I really enjoyed it. It did end up being um, more ministry theology heavy than what I thought I was getting into in the beginning. But it's still about about half of my um, courses were catered to really what I was interested in, which was the sociology, anthropology, social justice side of things. Um, so that that was all happening. And so you know, when you're learning about something, you more or less, even if you find out later in life, oh, I wasn't actually interested in that. When you're learning about it and and trying to, you know, get passing grades and all that, you, you develop more interest just because you know more about something. Um, so you couple that with the fact that we started going back to Haiti consistently. And, and by our second or third trip, I was lucky to be asked by one of our friends at Heart to Heart International to kind of come assist with one of the trips they were doing with, with the university. And so I said, sure. And over like the two month window I had before that trip, I really just dove into and went crazy with trying to learn Haitian Creole, trying to learn a lot about Haiti's history. Um, and to me, it had, it had everything to do with like proving my worth on this next trip and, you know, Im- impressing people. Um, and all that, which I will say to an extent, I think did happen. I don't know necessarily where my motivations were and if it was good or not. Um, and, and we could, we could talk much more about that, but yeah, you know, interest with culture started Haiti is like just a lot of places. Once you start getting involved, it's so hard not to stay involved for good and bad reasons, but you know, a huge piece of my and then again all of this is like for good and for bad but a huge piece of my identity in terms of how my worldview has been shaped and all that has come from Haiti so even if um tomorrow something happened and I wasn't doing work there anymore um which by the way I I do I do not live in Haiti um typically I'll, I'll visit 3 to 5 times a year but uh, recently haven't been going as much because of the unrest going on down there. Um, but even if tomorrow I stopped doing all the work I do in Haiti, it would always influence and be a part of me um, on both conscious and subconscious levels. Cause there's like, you can't get around, you can't stick your head back in the sand after um, you experience and, and see some of the stuff that, that you see. 
and and I know Haiti isn't necessarily unique in that sense, and that there's a lot of places in the world um, that you can experience that'll do that too. So back to your question of, I guess you asked about the humanitarian piece. I think I've always known I wanted to help people, and that it was a good thing when people help people. Um, and then Haiti and our friends at Heart to Heart gave such a unique approach that I thought was very well thought out. And to this day, I still think is well thought out and honestly is the foundation of what we do um, at Love Haiti. Um, so I knew I wanted to help people. Culture was really interesting. I thought I found something special in the group we were going with and the model that they used. Um, so, I mean, with all that, I think I just kind of ran with it. Yeah, I could see all that. You were predisposed toward doing some kind of um, humanitarian thing anyhow. And then this all came along. And of course, we didn't tell the full story, but our, your sister, Quincy, had been to Haiti previous and had really mm -hmm. fallen in love with it and was planning to be a, was hoping to be some kind of medical missionary or something. So when, after she died, we all were like, well, among other things, maybe we can go down there and and uh, mm -hmm. stir up some good in her honor. So we kind of go started going for her, and then we kept going back, and you specifically kept going back for the Haitians and for her. She's always with us. Mm -hmm. But um, so, yeah, it totally makes sense now, like the way it's unfolded. Uh, it's been so... It's been so unbelievable to watch, you know, like for me, because the first time you went, you were what, 17, 18? And it was eight, 18, yeah. And, you know, we were literally sitting on our butts, moving rocks off of a grass field in order to try to make a soccer field and, um, and hanging out with these Haitians that to this very day, literally this day, I would, and I know you do too, more than me. I was interacting with some of the young people that we met on that very first trip, um, interacting today through Facebook and stuff. So to watch you mm -hmm. in that really impressionable because of grief, but also impressionable because your brain is so, you absorb so much. You're so socially intelligent. Um, and uh, to see all that happen, it's, it's such a beautiful story. Sometimes your mom and I just look at each other, but we just shake our heads. We're like, this is nuts. This is crazy. What it all, is nuts. All of us have been through, and then what and what you're doing, and then to top it off with, well, not that it can be topped off, but to add to the mix of how difficult, of how challenging the country is, and um, how hard it is. This is not just like a job where you, you know, it, it on the outside it might seem like. Oh, it's nice, nice and a fun, exciting job, which it is at times, but it's mm -hmm. so ridiculously hard. So, um, why, why do you think, first of all, I want to ask, why is Haiti in such a, I know, I know we don't have time to unpack 400 years of colonialism and other things, but why do you think Haiti is, uh, in such a mess right now? And secondly, then I'm going to ask why. What are, what are the most challenging things for you, particularly in your work with lovehaiti.org? Yeah, this is, um, gave a little snippet of this to the, to the youth group last night too. Um, the, I think the, the, the most honest place to like start this conversation is to, or at least for someone like me, is to acknowledge Haiti is where it is because of Haitians who have made terrible decisions and because the international community never gave them a chance to make good decisions. Um, so like <clears throat> when I started going to Haiti and, you know, I started reading about Haiti's history for probably like two, three, four years there, I was really dead set on like, Haiti's never done anything wrong. A hundred percent of this is all the international community that's exploited them. Um, and you honestly, you, someone could probably still convince me that 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 was the case. But I think a more realistic, healthy, honest response is it's a mixture of both things. Um, Haiti can't be where it's at right now if uh, they wouldn't have had, you know, some of the government disorganization and corruption that they've had over the last hundred years. But it's more complicated than just saying that because then you ask yourself, okay, so why? why has the government been so disorganized and corrupt, let's just say over the last 30 years? And you look back to 1986 and 
um, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that U.S. interests or U.S. politicians directly have been propping up and supporting and more or less choosing Haiti's leaders for the last 30 years. And you could even go back further. Um, I would say really one of the only autonomous times in Haiti's history over the last 100 years was the uh, the dictatorships, uh, which was Papa Doc and Baby Doc, you know, from the 50s to the mid 80s. Um, and this is this is changing the topic a little bit. But um, as odd as it is, and as much as I'm not in favor of authoritarian regimes, which they very much were, um, the end result for Haiti f- with the Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier was it very much was a benevolent dictatorship for the end result on the Haitian people. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people know about the dictatorships in Haiti and, and for sure it did things that contributed to Haiti's continued impoverishment. But at the time it was Haiti's highest point of human development throughout its history. And, um, you know, the, the hardest part to talk about is the, like with every authoritarian government, um, you know, the secret police force and the silencing of people that, you know, w- weren't agreeing with the dictatorship. And for sure that, you know, they called it the Tantan Makut, which was like a, uh, um, what's the, like a boogeyman story that they would, that in all throughout Haiti's history, they would tell kids to like get them to do chores and stuff like that. And then, so they actually labeled the secret police force that the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Um, and for sure, you know, there were between two and 3000 people that were murdered by that secret police force, but it's complicated because then you think about since 1986, the beginning of democracy in Haiti after that dictatorship, how many tens of thousands of people have died because of the worsening conditions in healthcare and nutrition. Um, and so it's difficult. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I've kind of only been talking about the last the last thirty minutes, but of course, um, nothing happens in a vacuum, and I think we're extremely tempted, especially as people who are on the privileged winning side of history. It's extremely tempting to always think things happen in a vacuum because then we can distance ourselves from how we got to where we are, and then how they got to where they are, and how it's more complicated than just waking up and making a decision one day that was good or bad. Um, so yeah, and and we could keep talking about that too. We we could go back to the initial, you know, independence debt that they had to pay to France. Um, that was eventually uh, kind of sold. So, you know, you know, actually, I'll stop right there. Maybe you can edit that out. That was is going to be a long, longer, like me talking right there. <laughs> I already talked no, for a bit. So. I I don't plan to edit any out, but we we can if we if we need to. Um, but yeah, your point is they started in debt. And so that was a massive problem from the very beginning. And I agree with mm-hmm. you. I think that you're wise to to frame it that way, that Haitians made some bad choices as well as the international community. Of course, the problem is when you're already impoverished, when you're already behind the eight ball, so to speak, you're, you have less choices to make and less influence. So whereas someone like me who grew up with... Um, Uh, a lot of benefits that a lot of, you know, Haitian person might not have grown up with, you know, I could make a hundred mistakes before I figured Mm -hmm. out what I wanted to do or whatever a Haitian may not. And the government may not have, they may only have a few choices. So Mm -hmm. it's tough, man. The stakes are really high when you only have a few choices. Yeah. Yeah. Because of, because of the position that the international community put them in at many instances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know you could go on all day. And so I encourage people to um, check out lovehaiti.org and and or reach out to you. They can find your information in there to get more stuff. Uh, what about in terms of the history and those kinds of things? What about for you specifically with a nonprofit right now? Um, we've had, what, we're going on seven, a little over seven years, seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. We've been going down there. Um, involved in all kinds of things, soccer fields and healthcare and nurses and teachers and schools. It's been an unbelievable story. I'm super proud of, but also incredibly hard. So what's, 
what's the yeah. most challenging thing for you right now? Yeah, I guess the, I don't think we talked about the current context and situation in Haiti. Um, right. Yeah. It, it, it's like, it's likely a lot of people know at least a little bit because they're, they've been all over the news for the last year. Um, but Haiti right now, you, um, you could say is in like the worst six week stretch of its history since they won their independence in 1804 from, from the French. And, um, basically what's going on is there is no functioning government. The only real government representative in power right now, uh, isn't even recognized by about half the country at least. And, uh, almost certainly is implicated in last year's assassination of the president. Um, so absolute government vacuum uh, starting a year and a half ago, gangs started to organize themselves a little more. And now, you know, in terms of the capital, they control about three quarters of the capital. Um, police force is vastly outnumbered. And so what's ended up happening is people have been protesting and putting up roadblocks for a multitude of reasons, but the main ones are we're tired of the gangs and the kidnappings. Um, we're tired of fuel prices being raised, and that's a complicated uh, conversation with with Haiti's history. Um, and we're tired of the rampant inflation that uh, is being caused by a multitude of actors. Obviously, there's inflation going on everywhere in the world right now, uh, but because of the, I guess, lack of transparency in some of the the Haitian banking system, it's it's uh, worse. You know, I won't even I won't even like blame. I'll just say it's worse in Haiti than the rest of the world in terms of inflation. Um, so for the last six weeks, uh, there have been several weeks we've had to pause um, about all of our programs on the ground because one, a lot of our staff and people can't move anywhere with the roadblocks and the um, oh, I don't even know if I mentioned there there is no fuel in the country right now. The the biggest gang. Um, controls the main fuel terminal in the country. And that has started to maybe change, but you never really know. So um, I guess a good a good picture to describe the situation on the ground is I'm a part of this Facebook group that's like Haiti tourist information or whatever. And there was a, a guy in there who I think was about my age who he posted something about like, hey, I, I've never been to Haiti, but I'd love to go right now and go to the slums in Port-au-Prince and tell the story of some of the people being affected by the gangs. And I've never responded to anything on this page before, but I apparently couldn't help myself with not saying something um, to this guy. And one, I did mention, I think that's totally entirely honorable and a really cool thing to try to do. And I mean, I think that's like Jesus and a reporter right there. Mm -hmm. um, but I told him just like, practically if you can if you can get to Port-au-Prince you will not be able to drive more than a quarter mile from the airport I really don't think you'll be able to find anyone to drive you that has gas or that would be willing to drive you through all the stuff you're going to see um, and also you're not going to have clean water um, when you get to where you're going and I would genuinely say there's probably a 50% chance you would get shot by a gang going where you're going in a car being a foreigner um, because all of the rules of, you know, the humanitarian reporting, whatever that applies to the world um, they're they don't apply in Haiti right now. Everyone's a target. And, well, and uh, especially in Port-au-Prince, right? Especially in Port-au-Prince. And it's, um, yeah. And I would say the major cities, you know, the, probably three, four, five biggest cities. It's pretty similar all over, but yes, Port-au-Prince is like by if far you were, the worst. If you were able to paratroop into certain mountain areas that you love to go, parachute, paratroop, if you were a paratrooper, you would feel more comfortable than having to go through the major cities. Slightly, slightly. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure, more comfortable. Um, and you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a handful of times I have gotten into Haiti through the Dominican Republic, which is the neighboring country um, on that same island. Uh, but with this newest round of stuff that's been going on, and, and the main reason is 
the lack of fuel and the fact that, okay, so if I were to get to the border or something, it, I'm not going to be able to go anywhere. As soon as I cross the border, I'm just like standing there kind of stuck. Um, but yeah, for sure. If, if you can, this is kind of the way it's always been too, but especially the last couple of years, if you could get into rural Haiti, like where we work, um, it's a totally different world than the cities, but that only uh, extends so long and goes on for so long because at some point everyone is affected by the stuff and you can see the, like the business, the financial side of that is definitely already happening. I mean, clean water is not reaching those places. Fuel is not reaching those places, but um, yeah, I guess the big point to make is the gang control in rural Haiti is not like it is in the cities. Um, so yeah. Yeah. It's a mess right now, man. And it always kind of has been, but it definitely is recently. And meanwhile, um, you have, we all have, you know, good friends that live in the middle of all these. These are real live human beings who are just being crushed by all of this stuff. Yeah. And so to, I guess, to answer your question about the most difficult thing right now, um, and this isn't unique with me. This is everyone involved with our organization. It really just feels like, what are we supposed to be doing right now? Because, you know, school is not in session. That's a big part of what we do. Um, we're not, our soccer tournament stuff with our kids is on hold because we do that in connection with local schools. So that's not happening. Um, and we have people that, you know, for just those two things, for education and for soccer, we have people that work for us that, that do things um, that help us run these programs. And so we are still paying everyone, but um, week in and week out, it's kind of like we don't know if anyone's going to be able to do anything this week. Um, luckily, we we really have gotten lucky with some of the healthcare stuff we do um, in that our full-time nurse, when all the, the newest protests started happening, she was already in rural Haiti where we work. And so even though she's been extremely limited on her supplies, she's been able to continue hosting clinics um stuff so yeah you know waking up every morning and reaching out to my to my main coworker, my co-executive director who is a haitian man um and us just trying to figure out like you know we can do some work we can make some headway on a couple things but part of it feels pointless because we have no idea when you know said project would be able to happen or it's also possible that in a couple weeks maybe there's a massive, um, you know, government overhaul and there's a new constitution and we have to figure out as a nonprofit, how, okay, how do we operate under this new constitution? So, um, it's very difficult. It's, it's always difficult doing the work in Haiti, but this is a new kind of, um, if, uh, there's probably a word less intense than nihilism that I want to use, but I don't know what the word is because I don't want to use the word nihilism. Yeah. yeah, I don't either. Why should Americans, why should the people listening to this and others in the global north, well, there might be people listening to this not from the global north, but why should people care about this most poorest country, in, at least in the Western Hemisphere, probably? Honestly, like my first response is I don't know. Um, I kind of got to a point recently where I I don't I don't know how to explain to people how they should care about the things going on in the world, even if they don't affect them. It um and, and you know, at, at the same time, with everything with Haiti, um, like all of that heaviness that I have in my life, I know that I do not pay much attention to, and I avoid a lot of the other conflict and terrible stuff going on in the world because I don't think I can hold all that. So mm. I I get that everyone is kind of in that same position with probably whatever's going on in their life, but then at the same time, it's like I it it feels wrong and like it's not going to work if this whole thing is based around me trying to convince you to care, um, and it's. It's more complicated than that because I get, you know, like a big part of what I do is the storytelling side of things. And that's huge for people. And sometimes people just don't know the story. Um, and so that's that's what will get them to care. But um, yeah, I mean, 
you could you could go a you know a quasi spiritual route and um I think you've probably talked about this before, but you know I think a lot of the justice and the um I don't know the spirituality of the world in some way is connected to Haiti because of its history with you know being the first place truly like the first place in human history to be like yeah we're not going to do the slave thing uh and we're also not going to be slaves anymore uh so much came out of that so much good um and so you know you think about that and then you think oh man how beautiful would it have been if Haiti was this most affluent well educated society because they were that first group to to do that um and and they're not and so I've talked to a lot of uh, Haitians definitely feel this. And I know that Americans that visit feel it too. There is something about the place um, in terms of its place, its position in history. Um, that is extremely special. And it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a cornerstone of, I think, modern human history uh, because of, of what they did, um, what they were able to accomplish. And so I think people in terms of like Christians, if you care about, you know, um, racial justice and kind of restoring humanity from the racialized thing we do now, you kind of have to look back to, to Haiti because that was, you know, such an incredible portion of history uh, that happened that uh, at the time. And then even to this day, still some, the world did not like very much. Um, and you're talking so. about the slave revolt that was successful. Yeah, the fact that a bunch of black people could fight and win against a bunch of white people in the 1800s. And then, you know, there have been many slave revolts in human history. And for the most part, because because they're, you know, because people are uneducated and were formerly slaves, it's very difficult to form and organize like a functioning society. Mm -hmm. And Haiti was the first place that was actually able to do that. Which that was the that really was the problem. It wasn't so much that it was like, yeah, we know everyone can fight, and you know sometimes people win battles. But the fact that they could do that and then be like, okay, we're our own country now, and we're governing ourselves as these black people, that was a problem for, uh, you know, obviously for France and they because they lost you know a lot of money in that process. And but for the U.S. at the time, which was still, um, I believe in 1804, we were still importing slaves in the country. Slavery was obviously still happening um but yeah it was it was a threat to the, the the way the world was was built um and and i i don't even think i mentioned this last night with the youth group but i wanted to point out um you know this is not to get nitpicky but <clears throat> uh you know talking about colonialism and like the affluence of western europe and america um again nothing happens in a vacuum so the Eiffel Tower was built during the time that Haiti was repaying its independence debt to France. So there's no direct like line item you can look at that connects this. But, you know, $21 billion was being paid from Haiti to France over that time. And France made enormous investments in architecture and in landmarks. And so now you have people today, 2022, go to France, look at the Eiffel Tower and, you know, you look at France and you look at Haiti and it's like, well, this is such a beautiful place that has all of its crap together and Haiti over there. Um, but Haiti the Eiffel Tower. It. Yeah. Like, and that's not. Yeah. The Eiffel Tower, you could 100 percent argue, was financed by Haitians paying off their own slavery, like paying off their own freedom. Um, and that's not. You know, that's a pretty uh, stark example, but it's not a unique thing at all. I mean, so much of Western Europe um, and in different ways, the U.S. had those ties to colonialism that financed, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, so much of what they do that created them to be what they are now. And then, you know, a lot of people in these affluent societies will look at a place like Haiti and be like, well, they basically just have to develop the way we did. <laughs> and the way that we developed internationally is like illegal now it's not going to happen and and also the resources and timelines and everything they're so different it would never work again the same exact way um so it's hilarious the i gave this example uh last night and i think uh when i spoke at mission church a couple years back but you know the city bank 
um, example of that uh, Haitian uh, independence debt. At at some point, after about you know fifty to seventy five years, somehow the French government um, they sold like part of the debt to a bank in the U.S. and then also the Haitian government had to start taking out other loans from U.S. banks to pay back the independence debt. So it's kind of those two things. One of those banks was Citibank, as we know today. Um, so a big part of, or at least a portion of Citibank's profitability throughout the 18 and 1900s was Haitians paying off their their slave debt. And I today have a Citibank credit card that you know gives me access to wealth and finances that I otherwise wouldn't have. I also use it to buy flights to Haiti at times. So it's this whole big circle of like, okay, this company, at least part of why they're profitable is because of this. And I benefit from this wealth and resources that they created here because of they extracted it from Haiti. And then I go to Haiti to try to help people and you know, I don't do this, but some people go to Haiti and try to like tell them what they're doing wrong and how to get themselves out of poverty while using the credit card that was financed by their slavery, you know? So, um, yeah, I don't know how we, how we got here, but talking about the Eiffel Tower and all that, I would love to go to France someday and see all those landmarks, but I know I'm never going to be able to look at them and completely just be like, oh, that's beautiful. And what a great thing right. because it's, it's too complicated. It's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought that that's a really good way to answer it. First of all, by um, recognizing that you don't really know how to convince people in terms of why should Americans get involved. Um, but also tying it back to, it does feel like Haiti is something of an intersection of, of history and geography in our world. I didn't realize until we started going to Haiti that that's actually where Christopher Columbus first land landed. Mm-hmm. He short little stint in Cuba at the same trip, but really the landing was uh, the beach over there in Cap Haitian, uh, off the other side of Haiti that we often go to. And you know, really, whether he intended to or not, Columbus initiated the global slave trade right there on the shores of Haiti. So it was the first place, like the start of the quote unquote new world. And then you connect that with the first place with a slave revolt and all the other things that have happened. So that's a really cool, important reason and a way to keep this in mind. It it feels like if we're interested in justice, whether we're Jesus followers or not, I think a lot of people who aren't even, you know, necessarily Christians care about, you know, forms of justice. And so Mm -hmm. if we do, we should, we should be concerned with this place. Is isn't it insane? So like I know in elementary school, obviously I learned about Christopher Columbus in 1492 and, you know, his three little ships. Mm-hmm. I Maybe it was said at one point and just never was information that a third grader, you know, third grade me would care about. I I was always under the impression from school, like, yes, Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered America and all that. And they, I guess they never mentioned where he first landed i mean we we were told it was the americas and that he thought it was india that that was what we were told and and to me especially then with the stories later of like plymouth rock and and all that stuff i always just thought oh he came to like the east coast u.s yeah today. florida florida or something. um it's yeah like how how was it never communicated like oh the place he first landed was modern day haiti just like putting that sentence in there but that's not a part of that right. was not a part of my curriculum. Yeah, and not that you're a third grade teacher or mine, because I'm the same. I'm the same way. Um, was personally trying to do anything, but it feels no, like no. This, it feels like this collective, um, subconscious way to cover up all of this stuff and just kind of suppress, kind of keep it all. So you do kind of have to work once you start to realize the importance of this area you kind of have to work to uncover. And once you do, it's like, how, yeah, how did this happen? How in the world have we been so blatantly ignorant? Well, there's probably a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons why, but hopefully through the work that you're doing and lovehaiti.org is doing, it'll help um, take small steps towards uncovering these things and, Mm 
shedding light and truth. So, yeah, so people can still get involved. We still got a nonprofit going. It's called lovehaiti.org. Still give money. We desperately need money and engagement because even though some stuff is on hold right now, well, A, first of all, you're still paying lots of Haitians to, you know, yeah, to do a job that, yeah, whether they, and while, yeah, go ahead. And I was just going to say, while some stuff is on hold, you know, there, there are things that are popping up um, that are unfortunate, but that are kind of one time, almost emergency response um, things that we're financing, um, you know, a little bit of food aid distribution. Um, I don't even think you know this. I don't think we've talked about this. Uh, but in in one of the areas in Haiti that we've been heavily involved in, um, and this this might sound worse than it is, and and maybe that's okay, but um the the food situation, you know, there there's no trade going on between communities that are more than a mile apart right now because roads are blocked. There's no fuel. You can't get things anywhere. Um, so in one of the communities we're involved with, people on the market have started to sell uh, agricultural grain feed as food to other people. It's it's one of the things they are starting to resort to to supplement their diet because they're not able to to get the the normal food food items that they've been able to get. So I just bring that up because in terms of the one-time response projects, we're, we're looking at just, you know, trying to locate the 50 most vulnerable families in this uh, community and to send some money down for us to, to buy some real food and deliver them to the family. So, so there's stuff like that, that pops up and um, yeah, the m- money can always be used, I guess is the, is the point there. Yeah. And meanwhile, to your earlier point, next week or two weeks or whatever it's there's there's going to be new windows of opportunity and we have soccer things to run and and schools to run Mm -hmm. and we have medicine to buy and we can't be behind on all that so whoever's listening uh if you're not plugged in somewhere at a nonprofit, i can't recommend this one highly enough i routinely hear i'm sure shay does too but i routinely hear from folks how impressed they are with what you've done and how just the uh the idea here is to help Haitians help Haitians. So it's not to, mm-hmm. it's not to just give them money though at times, especially during these really crisis times, that, that is what we're going to do because um, what else can you do? But it, but the longer, mm-hmm. bigger picture is trying to figure out what they want and then to assist them rather than being like the mm-hmm. wealthy global North coming in and with a bunch of money telling them what to do and, yeah. you know, yeah. building stuff that they don't yeah. want or need. So yeah. that's a really important yeah, thing. Yeah, we don't. Um, I I would genuinely say outside of um, when we, you know, we kind of put our foot down and encourage and make happen girls soccer. Um, that does yeah. not naturally happen in most of our communities. Outside of that, we there's nothing we do that we are like asking or telling people to do. We just yeah. are trying to do with them what they are trying to do. Um and that's pretty special. And, you know, there's not every nonprofit um, has that sort of that yeah. disposition. And it's also what makes it stuff like right now complicated with, you know, we just want to be a partner for Haitians to develop Haiti. And so then you think through, okay, so what does that mean? There are plenty of Haitians in gangs that are uh, trying to develop Haiti, but mm-hmm. we don't really want the gang takeover. It, uh, what I'm trying to say is it's hard to to know as a consensus for the population, like what exactly they want moving forward and how to support that. And it all gets drowned out so much by international actors and politicians giving their input. Um, complicated. Man. It's so, so complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, thanks for saying that. Right. The one thing that we do um, have pushed a little bit is the girls soccer. And that's because Quincy was a soccer player and loved it so mm-hmm. much. Um, and also because at the same time, when we're down there, especially in the rural areas, we've noticed there's a little bit of stigmatism attached to girls playing soccer. Like, yep. you know, it, it's not supposed yep. to happen. So, um, you know, we, well, and, and think- you know, I, sorry, I, uh, I was just going to build off that of like, if if places in the states were the same way as Haiti, and actually maybe there's an example to find to make this comparison, 
if a place in the States was like Haiti with such limited resources, like say the whole community has a soccer ball and enough jerseys for one team, I think in the States, we naturally would probably revert to, oh, boys are going to play soccer then. If we only have enough stuff for like one team, it's going to be the boys because that's, you know, that's in in the U.S. That's where the the money and the focus is on sports still. Um, So anyway, I just say that all to because I think some people hear that and they'll be like, well, why, you know, why are Haitians misogynistic or whatever? And I'm not saying they're not. That is a thing in Haitian culture for sure. But um, I don't think we're all that different with what we would right. do in that exact same scenario. So. Right. Sorry. Thank you for uh, reframing that. I wasn't trying to suggest that because you're right. No, every, yeah. And I didn't think you were. Yeah. Every, everywhere you go, we have that same kind of problem. But given that Quincy was a player and that, um, and played college mm-hmm. soccer, you know, and loved it. It was so much a part of her life. And that um, girls in that, in a lot of those rural areas aren't getting that chance. We kind of, yeah, I personally have kind of always pushed that a little bit. So, well, yeah. anyhow, yeah. we've gone a while. And I think you and I could talk forever about Haiti and about theological reconstruction and all that. Um, but I know our listeners, they can't listen forever. I mean, everyone has an attention span, Shay. So we're going we're going to yeah. uh, wind this down. What about as we as we close out? What's one of the dumbest things that you've ever said in Haiti as you've tried to uh, be translate and interpret? And what people need to know first of all is that you speak Haitian Creole extremely well, and uh, are are relatively fluent in it, but. Um, I always love hearing about some yeah. of the. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I I won't start an argument there with you over the almost fluent piece. Well, but, I mean, when you for for this white American guy, you seem well, exactly, real- yeah. For the context, sure. Like, and that's that's actually really fun is to make people think that even though it's not true. <laughs> um, and you, I feel totally free and liberated to tell whatever story I want because you know all the stories. Yeah. Of, of those things so you should feel free i mean the the yeah it, you know most everything is the funny stuff like that that happens is like slang um sort of stuff and most of them end up being innuendos and for a while it felt like why are there so many freaking innuendos in haitian creole and and then i kind of compared it to english and i realized oh it's not actually like that i just have grown up speaking english and so i know so like i think the the best comparison to give is, you know, some, for whatever reason in English, if we like, if you want to say that someone was having sex, you say they were doing it, you know, like they did it. Some, some people will say that. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a similar thing, uh, in Creole. And so you have the words, you know, like make and thing. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times you're trying to say, make something, make anything, make a thing, whatever. If you forget that middle word, you end up saying slang of like, sexual intercourse. So that one has happened multiple times. Um, one of which was in a church. I was talking to a Haitian lady and I was trying to ask <laughs> if there is anything she would like my group to do for her, like with her. Cause we were like doing some stuff in the church. I don't even remember. And, and so like what I, like in terms of slang, what I said was like, would you like collectively for us to have intercourse? Um, and there <laughs> was a, uh, uh, a brief pause from her and a frown. And luckily, you know, there was a Haitian friend next to me and and he knew exactly. It's like, if, if you knew what I was trying to say, it w- you would just like move on. But you know, she didn't know what I was trying to say. And then that same thing has happened, you know, once we were leaving a clinic and I was with a group of Americans and uh, I was trying to make a joke with the kid and say that, um, you know, white people, they move slowly. They do things slowly. And I accidentally said white people have intercourse slowly. Um, and the, the kid, his like eyes widens, like he had this whole revelation of like, <laughs> I never so that's that. a, that's an example. Yeah. Uh, there, <laughs> there are, there are others too, but, uh, um, those are good ones. I, I do like yeah, those stories. Those are, good. Those, are uh, those are good. All right, man. Well, Thanks for the work that you do and uh, genuinely love it. Super proud of it. And we'll all just keep doing the best that we can. And um, thanks for hanging out with me and the millions of people listening to this podcast and yeah. to this pa- that are subscribing to this Patreon page. 
Well, you got that number one best bookseller on Amazon right now. So your list is going to be skyrocketing. We have, as of today, it's been two weeks. It's been a number one new release. So like I said, I don't know how long these, like, they call them new releases, but yeah. anytime you can have number one attached to it, especially with books, mm-hmm. probably should just take it. So yeah. 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 All right, man. Well, thanks a lot. I'm going to push end now on the recording. Peace out. Peace. Thank you, everyone, for hanging out with us today. Uh, Share this episode if you found it to be helpful. Review it, star it, like it. Appreciate the interaction. Feel free to connect with me. I'm not great on Facebook or other social media, but you can try it. (laughs) That didn't sound too promising, did it? Sure, you can try it. You'll definitely have uh, luck if you find me through my website, jonathanfosteronline.com, and certainly on my Patreon page, All you got to do is search for Jonathan underscore Foster. All right. We've had some funky guitar. Now it needs to move into some boom bap beats. Thank you so much. Have a great day.